I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. As we continue to muddle through the COVID pandemic, we continue to be confronted with economic numbers that just wouldn't make sense in a normal economy. For example, there are millions of job openings out there, employers allegedly looking for workers. At the same time, unemployment remains relatively high. Millions of workers are still looking for work, and we can't seem to line up the workers with the jobs. In the past, some economists have argued that mismatches like this are the result of a skills gap, that we're just not educating American workers to take advantage of the jobs that are out there. But if you're a regular listener, you might agree with me that this is, well, bullshit. Throughout most of history, the most relevant job skills were always learned on the job, through apprenticeships, workplace training, and just months and years of experience. So this idea that skills come from a college degree just doesn't hold true, even for most college-educated white-collar workers. To learn more about the role and responsibility of employers in helping their workers develop the relevant job skills, I talked with Nicola Lowe, professor in city and regional planning at UNC Chapel Hill. My name is Nicola Lowe, and I'm a professor in city and regional planning at UNC Chapel Hill, and I teach courses in economic and workforce development. And my new book, which is out um, this year, is called Putting Skill to Work, How to Create Good Jobs in Uncertain Times. Thanks for joining us. I think uh, let's start with the basics here, Nicola. Um, very basic. What do you mean by the word skill? So at a basic level, skill is trained practice. And the way to think of that is a competency that gets developed over time through some kind of repeated action. But in my work, I don't try and just measure or assess skill. Instead, what I really care about is the interpretive side of skill. And what I mean by that is that skill gets interpreted differently by different people, and often because of differences in their level of influence or their position of power. And interpretation can vary also across different contexts and even at different points in time. So to me, that means we should not be asking what is skill and then looking for a precise or definitive answer, but instead ask who is interpreting skill and its value? Who has the power or the authority to decide who gets classified as skilled, who doesn't? And when we start to recognize that skill is interpreted, it ultimately means we need to recognize skill is political. There is power that is reflected in that interpretation. But that also means interpretations of skill can change. They can be negotiated. They can be renegotiated. So they're malleable. So, so let's put one question to rest. For decades, we've heard from people about a so-called skills gap. That's the problem with our economy. That's why there's low wage jobs. It's a skills gap. If only we educated our workers more, if only our schools did a better job, uh, then there wouldn't be so many low wage jobs and people wouldn't be suffering. Does that skills gap exist? Is that the problem in the economy today? To me, 
the problem today is in how skill gets interpreted. So for many decades, and this is going back to the 1980s even, our nation has decided to value skills and classify people as skilled who hold formal degrees, so who are formally educated at universities and colleges. And I think this is a major problem, especially when we consider that only around 50% of working adults in this country hold that prized degree. And so that raises the question, does that mean the other half of the workforce lacks skill? Um, in my view, I don't think so. I think that we are misclassifying a lot of workers as unskilled or lesser skilled. And that means we're really missing this chance to recognize their expertise, their knowledge, their ingenuity, the things they're contributing um, to work. And I think it gets to a second major problem, which begins to answer the question you asked, which is, if we're holding up educational institutions as the primary creators of skilled workers, we are ignoring the critical importance of work and workplaces as sites for skill development. And by extension, we are underemphasizing the role of American employers in developing, recognizing, replenishing skills through work-based learning and other forms of employer-supported skill development. So that's a major difference, um, I think, in, in the way that I present this problem. The other issue relates to um, the skills mismatch explanation, as you were uh, mentioning it. So that is an assumption that has been pushed by mainstream economists for many decades. And it assumes that individuals get paid less because they lack in-demand skills. And if they want to earn better wages, move up that career ladder, well, they first need to acquire those requisite skills. And so my view is very different again. It's presenting skill as this collective and evolving resource that gets developed and regenerated through interactions at the workplace. But it also recognizes that employers then need to be sharing more of that responsibility. They need to be figuring out how to extend those commitments across the entire workforce and educational spectrum, rather than just concentrating those investments narrowly at the top of the organizational or occupational hierarchy. Wasn't that always the norm <laughs> up until, uh, you know, maybe 30 years ago? You know, I'm, I, I graduated college in 1985 with a history degree, and I went to work in the tech industry. You know, other than learning how to learn, I didn't have any particular, I had no narrow set of skills that were useful in that job. But, you know, smart kid from a good school will train you. And that seemed to be the norm back then. There were plenty of jobs for liberal arts students. At the same time, when we had more of a manufacturing-based economy, you know, nobody went to work at an auto plant knowing how to uh, uh, do the various jobs on the manufacturing line. Uh, that's something you learned on the job. It, it strikes me that that's the way the economy worked forever, that you learned on the job. And then suddenly, at some point in the past few decades, the expectation became that you should come to the job with the skills already intact. 
when did that change? Yeah, so I don't think there was a sudden change, but I think that over the course of several decades, we have seen this shifting responsibility away from employers and onto colleges and universities at the same time that we are seeing more and more employers struggle to actually provide those kinds of skill development opportunities at the workplace. In some cases, these were systems that were created 30, 40 years ago that may have trained a workforce that now is aging out of the companies, whether that's in manufacturing or construction or a number of other industries, and those systems aren't in place anymore. And so there may be informal training mechanisms, but there are many companies now that just don't have those internal structures in place. They have not formalized mentoring or on-the-job learning. They haven't figured out how to actually create these systems so that they support continuous learning or that culture of learning within their organizational setting. And more and more of them are turning to external institutions and expecting them to not only step in and provide that training, but also to carry a lot of that cost. So yes, there has been that shift. And I think there are a number of reinforcing factors that are contributing to that. I'm wondering how much of this is an institutional change versus a uh, change in norms and expectations. Is it that these companies, the economy's changed in a way that they can no longer afford to provide that sort of internal training? Or is it just that they, they don't believe it's their responsibility to provide it? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, the companies that I study, especially in manufacturing, they're smaller sized and they're often deep in these supply chains where they themselves are being squeezed. Um, they are being expected to produce products um, on low profit margins within a certain time frame. So in order to train your workforce, you have to grapple with the fact that there may be these tensions between production demands and what you wanna do in the way of training. You might actually have to slow down production processes. And if you're in a supply chain where you don't have the ability to renegotiate that production time, or if you're facing these um, thin profit margins and you don't have the ability to say, hire extra people so that you can pull some experts off the shop floor and have them be your trainer for a day. That limits the ability of these firms to really put these systems in place. So I think, you know, from my perspective, it's not enough that we just say, employers, you need to take on more of this responsibility. You're shirking your responsibility for skill development. We have to be thinking about what are the real constraints that are standing in the way and then right. build those solutions that actually help firms overcome those challenges. So let's talk a little bit about the solutions. Things that work for a large, more, more integrated company wouldn't necessarily work for a smaller employer. What do we do with the smaller employers? Yeah, and that's a lot of my own focus in my research. I think at a fundamental level, 
we need solutions that are really helping employers reinterpret skill and especially these smaller firms. So the good news is that there's a lot of institutional actors and organizations in this country that are doing just that. And my goal in writing about them in the book was to really raise greater awareness of their existence, but also help policymakers recognize that more needs to be done to ensure that these strategies that they use can be replicated and scaled. So let me give you kind of a taste of what they do. It might help to actually start uh, with who they are. So yeah. the institutions I focus on, they're called workforce intermediaries. And that just means they're mediating a relationship between an employer and their workers or between job seekers and these jobs they're hoping to get access to. And the intermediaries, they take a variety of forms. So the ones that I've studied range from community-based organizations, labor union affiliates. There are some public workforce investment boards, also some community colleges. And they're often rooted in communities of color and they really care deeply about creating high quality job opportunities for workers that have been trapped in low paying, low quality jobs. So. What they do to improve the quality of jobs is they first start to engage these smaller employers around this issue of a supposed skills gap or shortage. So they're working with firms that claim they are struggling to find qualified and reliable workers, or when they hire people, those people leave. So they're really struggling with a retention issue. So the intermediaries that I study, um, they don't treat those claims as inherently accurate, but they also don't dismiss them outright. So what they do is they use that skills gap or shortage as a pain point. It's a focusing device for building trust with these smaller employers and for eventually pushing them to embrace more encompassing and inclusive solutions that improve workplace structures. Um, so that can start at the place of just hiring. So mm -hmm. what they will do is they will help these firms recognize that there's value in hiring people with some, but not all of their desired skills. So that means they can start relaxing some of the hiring requirements. And that can be especially important if they are putting that formal degree requirement on their job ad, for example. That often right. gets misused as this proxy for skill, but it's not really doing much in terms of reflecting what the actual work is that's being done. So they're helping these firms recognize there's greater degrees of freedom here when it comes to hiring and that there can be benefits to that. If you relax those requirements and you are looking for other kinds of things as you're hiring, it means that you may end up with a workforce that's going to stay longer. And therefore, when you invest in that workforce, you can retain that talent that you have helped to create. And so the next thing they do, because they don't just leave it at this point of hiring, that's kind of like the first step. Um, they really cross the threshold into these firms. So once people are hired and become those paid employees, 
They then help these companies to restructure workplace practices. And that can mean anything from job site mentoring and supervision to formalizing work-based learning systems, illuminating career pathways. This becomes really important because now workers can actually see there is a road ahead and they're not gonna jump ship simply because someone might pay a couple dollars extra if they realize and recognize that they have this future that will then generate um, higher pay and better opportunities. So they're working again with these companies. But the other thing they do in this process is they try and figure out what is really preventing these companies from fully investing in their workforce. So in some cases, it can be as simple as a fear, and this is a natural fear, that if you invest in someone and you pay good money to train them, that they'll just leave and go to another company. Well, these intermediaries really help these employers recognize that the solution to that fear is not holding back. It's figuring out what else needs to be done beyond just training and skill development to really keep that workforce happy, loyal, engaged. And it's here where they start to focus on other aspects of what's often called decent work. So uh -huh. pushing those steady wage increases, pushing greater coverage when it comes to worker benefits, making sure that there's worker autonomy and that workers can participate in decision-making processes, and also that there are mechanisms for worker voice, for worker representation. So, so wait, are you are you telling me that good jobs uh, attract, develop, and retain good workers? Exactly. Because <laughs> it sounds like that's the lesson you're trying to teach em employers. So, so, so these you call them uh, workplace intermediaries. Is that the correct term? Workforce intermediaries. Work workforce intermediaries. They they sound suspiciously like labor unions. Some are. Some are labor union affiliates. Um, others are not, but they are using strategies that labor unions have used for a long time, which is to really engage management in this negotiation around skills and work-based learning. And so, you know, they, they do take some of the lessons from what labor unions have done over the decades in not only helping to create training systems within industry, but more importantly, in protecting those systems. So finding ways to make sure that employers don't then undermine them. I think the big difference here is that the intermediaries that I'm looking at go into this with the assumption that it's not just about employers fighting and resisting investing in skill because they don't want to take on that responsibility. Instead, they go in recognizing that in many cases, these systems need to be built back up 
you need to get employers to start recognizing that there are costs to them when they are not replenishing skills, um, that they are not being as productive, they are not being as innovative, they are not being resilient. And I think the pandemic is a great illustration of this. Of course, you know, as an academic, when the pandemic hit, I immediately went into sort of research overdrive. And one of the things I wanted to do is document the way in which manufacturing firms in this country were responding to these supply chain bottlenecks and also the need for things like personal protective equipment, so PPE shortages in this country. And companies that invest in their workforce that had these, you know, robust training systems, they could quickly redeploy those in order to have their workforce learn new processes very quickly or be able to help in the co-design of new production systems or changed production systems in order to meet those demands. And there's a great example of this that involves an intermediary here in North Carolina. So this is an intermediary that has been working for about a decade with small and medium-sized apparel and textile firms. And they're based in a small town um, called Morganton, North Carolina. And there's a very large cluster of these small and medium-sized clothing manufacturers in that region that they have been working with over the decade, mostly to help them improve their working conditions, um, be able to commit to living wage jobs, really helping them go through this transformational process so that they turn what are bad jobs initially into high quality jobs. So as a result of their engagement with these firms, they were able to very quickly pull together a group of a dozen of these manufacturers and start to work on a solution for the PPE needs in the region and eventually in the state. And within one year of the start of the pandemic, that group of small firms that they had worked with, they had been able to produce a half million of these masks, gowns, um, hospital tents that they could use at different kinds of institutional facilities. So they were providing them to the public school systems, to the daycare facilities, to healthcare clinics, you name it. And then eventually once they were proven to be a quality product by all of these institutional actors, they made it available to the general public. I actually have about 10 of these masks that we rotate um, in our house. So I think this is a great example of what happens when you invest in these systems and you get employers to see them not as this power struggle necessarily, but as a resource, an enduring resource that can then be used by them to not only support new innovative processes and the creation and design of new products, but to also be resilient both as a company, but also in terms of your regional economy. Has the pandemic, especially with the, well, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a labor shortage, it's a wage shortage, but the difficulty in hiring now, is that is that changing minds with employers? Are they beginning to buy into what you're selling here? 
So I do think that we're a bit stuck in a wage solution and we need to think bigger. And what I mean by that is we heard this and it's not just during this pandemic with this great resignation as some people are calling it where mm -hmm. workers are leaving en masse and they're saying no to bad paying um, low quality jobs. There's you know, an argument out there that hey, this problem can be fixed by just raising wages, by setting those wages higher. And the assumption, as you said, is that this will attract and retain a more skilled, a more qualified, a more committed workforce. And I am fully in agreement. We do need to be pushing employers to set their wages higher. And I also agree with higher minimum wage standards. But I also worry that this kind of oversimplified pay for skill logic reinforces an individualized view of skills. It assumes that qualified people will just show up fully skilled, that they will be ready to work as if those skills are just plug and play. And so what it's doing is it's letting employers off the hook again. It's saying, oh, you don't need to invest in workforce skill because the skill is out there. If you just pay the right wage, you'll get it. And I think that is a problem. I think it gets us back to this um, vicious cycle where you have employers that are not investing in these skills and not creating these workplace structures that can support kind of a, a culture of learning and continuous upskilling. But I think more than that, what it does again is it fails to recognize the many challenges that firms face. Yeah, there are employers out there that can probably just pay for skill and get it. But I think what we need to be doing is really thinking about those institutional solutions that are needed to help the firms that can't get there or aren't there yet to really create those structures inside the firm so that they can be developing and regenerating those skills and really shifting problematic practices or organizational failings and routines that are undermining job quality that need to be resolved. So in this regard, I don't think wages alone are the answer. I think we need a much more robust and encompassing institutional solution. And can we get those institutional solutions without changing the narrative around skills and employment and jobs? You know, the idea that there's unskilled labor or low skilled labor or that there's good jobs and bad jobs and... Yeah, so I think what you're getting at is another kind of debate that's rolling out right now, which is, can we get good jobs simply by regulating them? And I think we're at this point with the Biden administration where we are seeing a lot of really promising actions, regulatory actions that are helping to strengthen labor laws. We're seeing a growing push across states and cities to raise minimum wages. We're seeing other kinds of income enhancing measures, including requirements for um, paid sick leave, for other kinds of benefits and protections. And so I think this is a really exciting moment in terms of strengthening active labor market policy in this country. 
country. I think there is an awareness. I think there is um, policy support for this at the federal level, also at the state level in many states. But what I want us to realize is that there are important reinforcing measures that come from what I view as these sort of micro institutional practices within firms. So if we're changing those at the same time, they're working in unison with these regulatory institutions. They're really helping to produce this mutual benefit for industry, worker, society. The way I see them is that they help to sharpen that blunt power of regulatory reform. So they're really ensuring that employers, all employers, not just the large ones, but the smaller ones as well, can behave in ways that these external interventions ultimately hope to achieve. And if we don't achieve this, what are the consequences for the economy? That is a great question. And I'll admit that, you know, over the last year, and actually since I sort of submitted the book to press, um, I realized that I actually needed to do a lot more thinking about skill myself to understand and better articulate what is at stake here. And so as part of that learning, deeper learning about skill, I've been reading a lot about historically rooted systemic racism in this country. And as part of that, reading these detailed histories of the Black worker experience in America. And what jumps out from those accounts is this undeniable evidence that skill assessments and work-based or work-related skill requirements can be racially biased and intentionally so. And this is not just degrees as a requirement, but other things as well, tests that are being used to assess workers, for example. And these historic accounts that I'm reading also show that the coded language of skill has been used for decades, for centuries in this country to justify occupational segregation, to reinforce racial wage gaps and so much worse. And there is a growing awareness of this. We're also seeing groups that are aware of this history pushing back on the standard skills narrative. So there's worker advocacy groups that are waking up to the realization that these claims of skills gaps by employers and industry associations are highly problematic. You're seeing prominent think tanks and influential thought leaders from Brookings to the um, Center for American Progress, Aspen Institute, New America Foundation, they're weighing in on this. And you're also seeing signs that worker advocacy groups and their funders are starting to say no to requests to provide support services to employers. They're instead wanting to redirect that support to people, especially within communities of color that have experienced persistent disinvestment and have suffered the most from systemic inequality. And so at one level, I think this questioning is essential. It's really important, this questioning about skill. It's good, we need to encourage it. But I also worry that in turning against skill, 
we may be giving up its interpretive power over employers. So in my view, the alternative here is not to erase skill entirely from the inequality narrative. Instead, it means we need to be reimagining skill and we need to be thinking about how it can get used to strengthen the institutional infrastructure that ultimately is needed to deliver high quality jobs to more workers. Uh, so I've got one final question for you. Why do you do this work? I was hoping you would ask that. <laughs> so as a planning professor, I get to teach and train future economic and workforce development practitioners. And I felt like that meant I really needed to make peace with skill myself, which is why I wrote this book. And it's helped me help my students realize the usefulness of skill, not in further dividing society, but really as this generative resource for aligning worker and employer interests, and ultimately for promoting more equitable economies. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic because, you know, how it, it's not just how we define skill, but how we value different skills. Yeah. Well, well thank you for your contribution to this. Yeah, thank you. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.